Welcome to the Omoja podcast, everyone. Uh, the Omoja podcast is brought to you by the African Studies Student Association at McGill. I'm Emily, VP Event at ASSA, and I'm here today with Marie, VP External of ASSA. And we're very glad to have Maya Amoha with us today, the creator of Batik Boutique. Thank you. So we're going to talk about African fashion today. Uh, Maya, would you like to quickly introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah, so hello, my name is Maya. Um, I am the owner and designer of Batik Boutique. I've had this business for about three years now. I believe it was May 2017 when I first started. And a little bit of the story was just that, uh, so I'm, I'm from Ontario, like I'm from Hamilton. Uh, I've been going to Montreal, I mean, going to Concordia for the last three years. So I've been living in Montreal. Um, however, it's more my, it's my father who's from Ghana and like that side of the family. So my grandma would always, you know, growing up, she would always live, go back and forth between here, there, you know, house there, house here kind of thing. Uh, and then I went in 2017 to visit uh, her and our family in Ghana uh, and spent a few months there. And on that trip, uh, and I was with my dad as well and my boyfriend at the time. And on that trip was when I started my brand um, actually, I didn't know at that point yet that it would become a brand, but that's when I uh, started to uh, take an interest in starting something. Um, and yeah, it's just been, it's been going on ever since. Uh, it's, uh, it's been really interesting. It's, it's a mix of, I really try to incorporate more contemporary, uh, Western, if you will, design with um, African print textile. Uh, mostly working with wax prints, but also batik, a lot of new batik uh, as well. And then traditional cloths, uh, mud cloth uh, in terms of like backpacks and fanny packs, things like that. Um, and yeah, I'm mostly, I'm just at the moment, it's totally online. I used to sell at markets here and there, lots of festivals over the summer. Uh, but obviously right now that can't happen. So it's, yeah, I've just been enjoying the, the ride of um, distributing through e-commerce. Thank you. Well, I was going to, you, you kind of like um, answered that already, but I was going to ask you about the name of the brand. So it's Batik mm -hmm. Boutique. Batik mm -hmm. is a reference to a textile. Yes. Yeah. So it's kind of funny that I like started the brand calling it Batik Boutique because I think in the very beginning, I didn't even have any batik. I just loved the name. Like I loved, to me, it was like, it just sounded so catchy. And of course, I mean, I was aware of the fact that what it really does is it pays homage to um, the, the origins of wax print. So what many people don't really know is, uh, and I actually think this is one of the question the topics we were going to discuss anyway but basically uh so batik you know batik is a type of cloth that is uh hand dyed um and that you can create motifs using um stamps uh or wax and it's just a it's a process where basically uh you apply the wax you know using these stamps to create your motifs and then you dye it and then it's like a resist technique pretty much where it takes quite a few uh like times to to perfect it and then you have your vibrant color um and it's absolutely gorgeous and i called it batik boutique because of the fact that wax print when you look at the origins of it um it has a long history that goes back to a point where it uh, it originated from batik actually because it 
historically, you know, batik had been created by um, uh, the Indone like Indonesians. And basically uh, the Dutch at the time that had colonized Indonesia uh, wanted to replicate batik patterns because they saw such an interest that there was in batik. So what they did was they actually uh, manufactured you know, their own version of batik. But the thing was that the Indonesians didn't actually really like it. They thought that it was like, they really preferred the imperfections of the handmade thing, the hand dyed uh, patterns, but it, it gained a lot of uh, interest in um, Africa, mostly West Africa, but you know, a lot of sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, then, you know, that's the wax print we know today. And the brands at that time were like Lisco, you know, which are Holland, uh, which are Dutch brands, right? And then over time it's developed to more, uh, more local brands within Ghana. And I know Ivory Coast as well, I'm pretty sure has their own local um, manufacturer as well. And then, you know, Chinese ones as well. So it's, I think the idea of the name Batik Boutique was really to pay homage to its true origin, which is, quite unique and quite like globalized. Let me know if my answers are too long, by the way. <laughs> no, no, they're good on topic. Perfect. Yeah, they're really perfect. It's the gorgeous okay. print. And now we all know the history of it, which is yeah. which <laughs> back to centuries ago, you know. No, it's, yeah. it's very insightful. So uh, yeah, I had another question more about like the fact that I feel like African prints have been booming these past years and people take more pride in wearing them. Uh, than they did before inside or outside the continent. Um, why is that for you? Do you feel like African fashion is as publicized? Do you think its popularity is changing over time? Like, what, what are your thoughts on this? Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, like, undoubtedly, it is just like, it's having its moments, like, that's clear. And when I think of the reasons why, I think there's like many reasons, you know, one of them, I mean, we have, we can't help, but we have to always mention Beyonce, you know, like we just have to, um, <laughs> as much as I don't want to give her all the credit, because, you know, obviously it's really the designers that are behind her who are the ones that have really uh, helped um, uh, elevate um, African fashion on a, on a global level. But of course, what I mean by that is just pop culture, right? Media. So um, I think like, I think also just like the rise of Afrobeat, honestly, I, you know, I mean, I can only speak from a perspective that's from Canada, but I, when I just think of the span of time, so I've been, like I said, my brand's been about like, th it's about three and a half years old. And like, I remember when I first went to Ghana, like, well, it was, this, it was, I had already been to Ghana in the past when I was young, but it was like that, the last time I was in Ghana and like hearing um, a lot of different uh, African artists there, uh, like Shatawale and like different Ghanaian artists. And I remember like, that was my first real exposure to uh, more like Afrobeat. I think before then, I when I thought of African music, I was thinking more of like traditional, like high life, for instance, Ghanaian high life, right? Like music that I grew up hearing in like churches whenever there were Ghanaian events, things like that, right? But I, I wasn't super aware of a more like contemporary music style that was Afrobeat. So after coming back from Ghana, I remember like going to a couple of events that I sold at in Toronto where there were some Afrobeat events and then like going to Montreal and like there being even more things going on. And I just feel like that 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 steady like transition uh, and, and increase in, in 
in um, in like growth and interest for Afrobeat music today, where we now hear like Beyonce's album, where she's working with lots of different uh, Afrobeat artists, and then also you know in her music videos where she's working with African designers. It's like they all come together. I think it's more like art in Africa is having its moment. Yeah, so that's kind of my answer. I think that like pretty much that's really helped is just pop culture and media. Um, in addition to like just e-commerce, I think that like e-commerce uh, has allowed African artists and designers to now connect with the rest of the world. Um, and, and it took time, I think, for those like structures to exist. I completely agree with this. Um, I. I do believe that having um, Anglophone Africans actually promote their culture for the sub-Saharan area, at least, um, has helped a lot. Because Francophone, we, because of the history of colonialism, well, it's a bit, it's a bit more complicated. I would. Oh, say. interesting, interesting. In what way? I'm curious. Like, what have you noticed? Like, um, just stick so, more to themselves. So basically, because we we're colonized by two different um, systems, mm. it was a French direct rule. Um, and the um, the Anglophone and yeah. um, here, for instance, in Ivory Coast, you can notice just by the way people uh, would dress to go to work, uh, women would be more likely to wear African prints, um, but men's are always in suits, you know, mm. blue, navy blue suits, and that that would be just about it. Um, and when you ask um, why why what what do you never wear like African stuff to um, to to just go to work, they will tell you that it's the norm. Um, that the norm is European, basically, um, as opposed to, I remember going to Nigeria um, and to Abuja specifically, um, and every single Friday, there was a day that you had to wear African prints. It could be anything uh -huh. religious based on the Muslim religions there, or just some, something that makes you African, basically. And that, that was the thing that it's, I mean, so far, I have not seen that here. Um, wow. so, I believe Afrobeat and the fact that Nigerians and Ghanaians actually really did their best to promote the culture um, made us as Francophone kind of reconnect with this part of the culture. That mm. kind of so, really interesting. Wow, that's so interesting because like, I mean, I can't just make assumptions, but I, I can't help but feel like me, because I took an African history class like last year. And I remember being so interested of like when they discussed the two, um, just like the like they kind of compared i remember we had a couple classes where we compared call it like uh, anglophone colonization versus mm -hmm. the francophone colonization and what tactics were used differently right both were mm -hmm. equally bad in many ways right and both like had the same goals in mind obviously right which were to continue to dominate and take hold of uh these these countries economically at least but the difference from what i had read was that the frank like the france actually you know, at that time, uh, really emphasized integrating their own culture into uh, African, French African countries, right? Mm -hmm. And versus the difference was the Anglophone tactics were a bit less like um, on the field. Like it was more like they allowed, uh, you know, certain, for instance, Ghanaian chiefs to continue to, you know, uh, hold certain important roles in society. However, they still were, you know, uh, they were still like overall, of course, there still was that 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 control um, from England. Mm -hmm. But it was it's just interesting because I, I wonder, I'm sure that really plays a part in culture, you know, and, and in yeah. style even where like they called it. There was a name for it. Maybe you even know what I'm talking about. There was a name for literally like the French people. Or sorry, 
like West African people who passed a certain like test of looking like European enough mm-hmm. would be granted a certain citizenship, a certain status, exactly. like, or something. I can't remember what the word was. Yeah, that was it. That was um, you know. So that continues. Crazy. It continues. Yeah. Um, if anyone, usually when you go to France, um, I usually have this sort of divide um, between me as an African that comes from the continent and then other people that actually live there. And sometimes uh, where you can have as comments like, oh, yeah, you're from Le Bled. And Le Bled is basically, um, I think it means village in Arabic. Um, but um, the fact that you refer to a whole continent or a whole country as Bled is problematic. But because yeah. you want to be assimilated to the French culture, you just genuinely want to distance yourself from the blood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so problematic. That's, oh. that's sad. Yeah. All right. So, new question. Um, what are the challenges of being an African designer on the continent and outside of it? So essentially, we're asking how easy it is to produce or to ship African prints or texture. Um, what are the costs? Um, who can afford it? So it's a big question. Um, well, I'll first talk about what I think the challenges are of um, designers that are on the continent, uh, as in, I mean, on African continent. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned earlier, like, you know, as e-commerce is starting to uh, gain an increase, that's really cool because I think that what was really lacking was that, you know, that the connectedness to the rest of the world, right, for some obvious reasons being like just proximity right like geographic location but also uh just that certain structures did not uh either they did not exist or they they were there but you know were were not as accessible because they're expensive to a lot of people so there would be so much like as we know you know like in Ghana for instance there's so many everyone's got a business honestly like it's such an entrepreneurial culture of people where everybody's doing something selling something but you know they're generally selling to people like locally right not not on a global level um and i think that like uh trade in general like a lot of the trade policies um have have uh, prevented that in certain ways right and and even just within like intercontinentally uh like you know when people push for more free trade um across uh, africa that could help, I would assume, that could help um, um, uh, just economically giving, giving them that economic advantage. So I think that like that, that disadvantage was al- has always been just that like, it's not up until more recently and even still, it wasn't super, super easy to look up African clothing online and like find something that you can easily just buy. Cause it was just like, it, it was such a hassle. So I think that they, they it's slowly changing um, as they are able to access a bit more resource, just like we are here, where like, you know, I mean, right when I decide to, decide to start a business, it's like, I can make an Etsy page, I can make a Facebook page, I can make a website, I can put on my Instagram. There's just a certain, obviously, tech savviness that exists in a privileged society like Canada, you know? So I think like that has been a challenge for a lot of African designers, but that's like, oh my God, I can just, it's crazy how much that's changed. Like I just see, when I go on Instagram, I see so many Ghanaian designers, photographers, models, artists, everything coming together, uh, connecting, um, and then 
from big icons like Beyonce see them it's like of course it just snowballs so that's awesome um for my own for myself in terms of personal challenges being like off the continent um it's definitely hard like not being over there um unfortunately like I haven't even been back since I started the brand so when I started the brand in 2017 uh I since then I, I yeah I just haven't had a chance to go um mostly because my so my grandma unfortunately she passed away that same year like literally four months later or something so that was like kind of devastating and I think that like since then we just haven't I mean my dad went for funeral things but we we just haven't had a chance to all go um and it's expensive right it's expensive to do it and it's hard to get everyone together to go and I don't know I have I just haven't had the chance to go alone even or anything because I'm in school right so it's been it's been a challenge to not be able to have the the kind of closeness with um production that I would if I were to be there like in the sense that the tailors that I work with it's like I mean I met them all actually before I came here and I am always in contact with them every day on whatsapp and everything but it's of course it's like it would have been really cool to just like hang out in Ghana for a year you know like work on my business there and also take more inspiration from there it's like there's so much that I still want to experience and learn from uh, Ghana and I haven't just I haven't had the chance yet to do like my like return you know how there's like so many uh Americans and Canadians that have like gone back like mm-hmm. I, I don't know about Ivory Coast but at least in Ghana it's it's crazy how there's such a large hub of like expats there and like I'm just so jealous when I see stories and things on Instagram because it's like I I'm just in school you know like I haven't had the chance to do that yet but but that I think that would be awesome just to get like inspiration as well like it's not the same to only look you know at images online and like things around me here it's like it's uh, when it's winter here and everything's like dead you don't really have the same inspiration you know so uh that's been hard and then also in terms of like uh, like shipping it's it's tricky right because it's just like it's far it can be expensive uh it's a lot of stuff um sometimes if I order a lot of things and then if I don't sell it it's like you've spent all this money on shipping and you're just trying to keep up with the costs that can be tricky um also communication you know uh, as much as we can contact on whatsapp uh just with the time differences even though like it's not that much of a time difference but it's more like the general lifestyle in Ghana is you wake up really early you know you go to bed really early mm-hmm. compared to here like I'm used to getting up like you know, nine o'clock, right? So not like super late, but obviously like there, they would have started their their day like four hours earlier at least, you know, they wake up by 4.35, right? And then they go to bed so early too and I'm up till like two, you know? Also like, I mean, things that are just out of everyone's control, which is just that like electricity will just like cut off sometimes in Ghana, like very often, you know, like a couple times a week very spontaneously and when that happens like I mean they can't use the sewing machines uh if their phone dies it's Mm -hmm. dead you know like and I there's nothing I can do to control that so Mm -hmm. very insightful so there's one last question um which is when is it cultural appropriation and when is it not uh yeah so I think that answer would differ like of course depending on who you ask and I mean, what they do, I guess, right? I think that it's like, it, it depends on a lot of factors, you know? And I think that um, when talking about indigenous craft and style and 
you know, instances where brands like retailers like Zara or H&M or whatever, you know, replicate these designs and, and, and essentially rip them off without giving any credit to uh, indigenous um, uh, cultures and tradition, like that to me is cultural appropriation in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're talking more about African prints and African style and, you know, I mean, first of all, African is like a very broad term, but what matters at least to me, I think, is that like, it's a lot to do with who is producing said uh style or object or outfit or clothing piece whatever it is um I think that it's really important that those who do decide to wear African print clothing or uh African jewelry or anything like a fashion or style item that comes from any culture it should come from the people who uh, where from where it originated you know I think that's really important is to at the very least, consider um, empowering and and giving back and and basically supporting businesses that are that are the the originators of of um, of the style. I think that appropriation is uh, is is that fine line between like appreciation and appropriation is drawn when it's in those moments of of you know something becoming mass produced and and then and then like just totally. Uh, uh, like you know, divesting in a way from 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 uh, these African traditions to the point where people don't even know where this 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 like what the history is of this um, piece of clothing. Mm-hmm. So I think that like there's a certain responsibility that both brands, like designers, like myself, and also uh, cons- consumers, customers have when purchasing items uh, to be uh just have knowledge possess some kind of knowledge of where this piece is from you know they don't need to know all the specifics but just like knowing that by doing this they are supporting a business that's located mm-hmm. in this country and uh and 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 then just knowing like to be culturally sensitive as well um so that's yeah that's that's pretty much like my answer I mean another like kind of a bit of like another answer people because people do ask me of course they ask me sometimes like is this cultural appropriation and what's interesting is like what I mentioned earlier about the batik uh and that relation to African print and how African print is uh historically is not actually African you know it it is I, I do think it still is because of the fact of what I said about how it gained interest uh in in sub-Saharan African countries and it it, it is entitled to that because it, it is clearly you know predominantly in those in and on the continent that we see it but at the same time uh I think that I wouldn't feel the same if I were to see um, people using more sacred cloth, I think, like more relig- with more religious connotations, like say uh, um, kente cloth, honestly, something like kente cloth. I've seen it before being done where it's being sold as kind of like something cheap, you know, and also not by uh, African people. So that made it just like 10 times worse. And like, when I see that, that hurts my heart because I feel like it's like, this is a type of cloth that uh, is like, historically so expensive you know to the point where like mm-hmm. if you had a piece you generally had like a, a 
a piece you know like not a whole not a, not a whole blanket you know and then like those that would have it would be like chiefs you know it was a chiefs would wear these things or you would wear it at like a formal event like a wedding or uh, either a wedding or a funeral or probably both yeah. I could be wrong with that but you know something obviously of meaning right so it, it has a different religious and traditional context and to see something like that being mass produced uh I just I feel like I wouldn't it wouldn't sit right with me I feel that just given that historical nature of things and that global influence that is like inherently there, uh, it, it makes me at least feel more okay with uh, what I'm doing. But I, I, there's definitely, I think there would definitely be limits of, of what cloths to use, um, you know, just in terms of like, can the local people of a certain town that this cloth originated from, can they afford it? If not, like if the average local person cannot afford this, mm -hmm. I don't feel good, you know, commodifying it and selling it to people here just because they can afford it. Something about that just seems wrong, you know? So I think I think it really is like uh, all about context and it's very subjective to um, what we're talking about. Thank you. Honestly, Amazing you've given us once again. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I I totally agree. That was very clear. I think for people that were not necessarily familiar with what cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation is, yeah. now they know. <laughs> so now they know. Yeah, yeah, and of course, this is like my my uh, interpretation. I think you could probably ask some people where they would say like. You know, it's not okay to see white people wearing um, African print clothing, and I and I get that to a certain level too. Like I understand that I can see both sides of the argument, but I think that like I've you know I've had obviously time to reflect on this after having this brand for a few years, and I just I I thought about it hard, and I thought about like just I've looked at the history, and and yeah, that that's just what makes the most sense to me is like there's I think mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with appreciating these cultures because exactly. I mean we can't we can't deny it it does it does it does empower these communities and it does support them um economically and that's back to like the whole idea of Africa being put on the map in terms of fashion on a global scale it's like we can't necessarily shy away from that cultural appreciation because that that really uh that that really um prohibits growth as well you know for the economic sector of african fashion and like to to just say like oh my god i don't want to wear anything that's from africa because then i will look like i'm appropriating uh you know does them a disservice so i think there's nothing wrong with appreciation as long as it's done uh, consciously exactly i think before closing up i i'll just add one last comment about um, this sort of other disputed issue about the fact that there's no such thing as African prints and only Dutch companies um, create the fabrics and then sell them on the African markets. Um, I think it's, it's very important to, to, first of all, to acknowledge that it's true and it works well. A lot of people wear Blisco, a lot of people wear um, what's called here as wax. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important to give credit to the people who actually um, create the design for um, Kente, for instance, which is uh, an African cloak um, made and designed by African people from, from the Akan ethnic group. Um, I think it's well prevalent in, um, in West Africa. I don't know about the rest of the, the regions. Um, but I think it's, it's important to sort of make the distinction between what is industrially produced and also what's produced on the ground. 
and give credits to to the Africans who who essentially make um, what what I can call African prints and and texture. All right, then we're gonna conclude. Um, so thank you, Maya, for accepting to be part of the podcast and share your experience in the fashion business. Uh, we hope that the people that are gonna hear it, um, that they're gonna learn something from the African fashion business, um, both on the continent and outside of it. And go check out the Batik Boutique Instagram page and support your local businesses. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank, thank you. you. It was a pleasure to have you.